Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This is the second half of the February show in our new style format. In this episode, Lucy goes head-to-head with Jeff to debate Vice. This should be fun. Come on, Lucy. After that, we are off to the movies for our reviews, which this month are Green Book, The Lego Movie 2 and Attila Battle Angel. Alita. Alita. Sadly, one person didn't make it to all the review movies this month, and we will take the piss out of him later. After the reviews and piss-taking, we look at what else we've been watching. And follow that up with brief listener comments from Phil. Finally, we finish with the big quiz. <laughs> and in keeping with our new format, there are prizes this month. Woohoo! Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. With the introduction of a new political party in the UK, the Independence Group, I am looking forward to the inevitable film. Shall we call it Independence Day? Oh, God. No. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. If they are remaking the old sci-fi blockbuster, who do you think will play the lead alien? Hi, my name's Neil, and I get to all the films that we're meant to review. What a quiet place. Move on, Jeff. You can't keep dragging up the past. OK, you two, stop bickering. You will crease the new suits. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're all dressed up in our fineries this evening as we're recording this show just before we settle down to provide live overnight commentary on the Oscars. <laughs> But before we do that, let's talk about our commitment to bring you new content every week and what the response has been so far. I don't know what you're laughing at, Neil. And I tell you what, if you fall asleep on my shoulder again, I will not be happy. <laughs> right. At the start of the month, we began a new series of pod shorts, Director on Director, where Phil Stubbs discussed his favourite director, Peter Jackson. The response was really positive, and some of the comments we received included... From Phil Foster, who, by the way, starts a new series of shorts next month. Really enjoyed it. It was nice to hear a lot of love for the Frighteners and, of course, the seminal Lord of the Rings. From Elijah, a fantastic episode on the career of Peter Jackson. A bit sad at times, but a wonderful breakdown of his works. And also, Elijah will be joining us on the show next time. And then from Declan, this is one of the best podcasts so far. Phil is excellent. He knows his stuff. And it's nice to have someone who knows as much, if not more, than Jeff. I hope you have lots more planned. We do, Deck. Phil will be back next month to talk about Stanley Kubrick. And for those who haven't caught up on the show yet, it's number 28 in our revamped website. Neil, I believe you have something to say about episode 29. Indeed I do, Graham. This was our mid-month show, which was built around an interview with location manager Mitch Ferguson. Even with the on-set noise that Graham had to tone down... The interview was very well received by our listeners. Paul says, I absolutely loved the interview. I think it brought the locations job to life and I certainly learned and laughed a fair bit. You and us too, Paul. Midge comes over as quite reserved and well-spoken. He certainly sold the job and if I was a 17-year-old looking to get into film, I know I would be very tempted. By the way, if you have the Radio Times for the week commencing 23rd of February, it has a great piece on one of Midge's shows, Shakespeare and Hathaway. 
It even mentions the place where we met Midge for our interview in Stratford-upon-Avon, but it doesn't mention the noise. (laughs) No. Thanks, Niels. And let's move on as I want to settle down with some popcorn and wine soon for the Oscars. By the way, who do you guys think are going to win the top awards? I have my money on best film, Black Panther. Bloody typical, a superhero movie. Why are you saying this, Graham? Is your Empire subscription due and you want it reduced? (laughs) Best actress, Lady Gaga. Best actor, Viggo Mortensen. After your interruption, Jeff, you can go next. No problem, Graham. By the way, in your suit, did you know you look like one of those men in black? That'll be the one played by Liam Neeson in the upcoming (laughs) Men in Black International. Okay, my choices. Best film, Green Book. Just loved it and I think it's going to win. Best actress, Glenn Close. Best Actor, Christian Bale. No one film will stand out at this year's awards. Men in Black sidekick, Neil, what do you think? (laughs) Okay, I think the following will win. Best Film, The Favourite, obviously. Best Actress, Olivia Colman, obviously. And Best Actor, Rami Malek. We each picked independently too. The UK betting is for Roma, Glenn Close and Rami Malek. I'm sure we'll mention who got what right next month and if Jeff wins, we'll hear about it ad nauseum. Right, guys, time to get ready for the big showdown in Lucy's State of the Movies. Earlier this month, we had the real pleasure of meeting Lucy and her partner Josh in London. As you probably can guess, we spoke a lot about film. What became apparent quite quickly is the opposite opinion Jeff and Lucy had for Vice. We thought it was worth recreating part of the conversation without Jeff swearing for you, the listener. Over to you, Jeff and Lucy. Welcome to the At The Flicks podcast. This is our section, Lucy's State of the Movies. Although for all of us at the moment, it's the state of drinking, because we're in a bar or pub in London, <laughs> having a few beers and chatting about films. My name's Jeff. Hi, I'm Lucy, and I'm actually on the podcast with these guys in the flesh for once. So that's nice. Hi, I'm Josh, also known as Mr. Lucy Goes to Hollywood. So this afternoon, we're going to be speaking about Vice. A wonderful political comedy from director Love. Adam McKay. <laughs> Boo, hiss. <laughs> now, before I give my views on this, I'm over, <laughs> handing over to Lucy to say her views on a film that she didn't particularly like. I found Vice incredibly patronising for all the wrong reasons, in the sense that I know Cheney was a bad person, I didn't need obnoxious metaphors and a fake credit sequence to reinforce the fact that he was a bad man. I found the whole filming incredibly A-level, actually probably less than A-level. It was like Windows Movie Maker-level garbage filmmaking that I I didn't respect at all. I frankly couldn't wait for the film to be over, if I'm quite honest. It's an interesting view. Do you think, though, that you have to make it palatable for Americans and so may have to scale that down a little. That's the thing, though. Are, are you saying that? Are, are you saying that we need to patronise America? Because no, I don't think so. I think that if you're going to show Dick Cheney to the world, don't be so patronising and obnoxiously American. I, I hated the film. Okay. Awful film. Awful film. Get angry. What about the performances before we go into the politics of the situation? That's the thing. Sam Rockwell as Bush was fantastic. I thought he was actually really good and he was a standout performance for me. And since seeing him in Three Billboards um, as the police officer, I thought he was fantastic and it was good to see him again. Bale as Cheney was okay. Like, I've seen him in better. Like, he just... He was all right. 
I think Amy Adams did a better job of his wife than he did of Cheney, quite frankly. Okay, where like, have you seen Bale as Bear? Was that American Psycho? You know, I've, I've seen him in, you know, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, you know, The Machinist, um, American Psycho, and all of those performances massively outweigh Vice, frankly, for the kind of performance that he gave. I just thought Vice was incredibly mediocre and just garbage, really. I just, even Christian Bale couldn't save this film for me, really. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> It just, it just didn't work out. Well, for me, I mean, I've seen f- footage of Cheney and I think that Bale did reflect a lot of that character. But I, I think the one thing for me is you've got a film that Adam McKay's directed that is about a chap who is dislikable throughout. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd all agree on that. That's that true. He's dislikable. Um, and the one thing for me as it was going through is his love for his daughter even though she comes out as gay he stands by her but in the end he stabs her in the back as well which just made me quite angry by the time I left the film so to me the film worked because it got my emotions going it got your emotions going but in a completely different way the thing is there were certain scenes like obviously when he stabbed his daughter in the back when I thought you know I was more angry at the man than the film but right. I kind of wish that the subject had been addressed in a more mature and less ha-ha, let's throw a fake endings credit in to be edgy kind of way. It just didn't do it for me. I just didn't resonate with that kind of filmmaking. I would have much preferred... It just, it, for a satire, it was a joke, quite frankly. It just it just didn't work. It was just so patronising and horrible and just awful. I just hated it. Let's, let's talk about those fake, those fake end credits that come in about two-thirds of the way through the film. I wanted to walk out. I wish I had, frankly. But go on. Josh, you felt the same on that, I take it? I agree with you that everybody here dislikes Cheney. There may be some people out there listening who do not agree with that view, but everybody on this podcast uh, is not a Cheney supporter. As I see it, such an important subject matter deserves serious filmmaking, not comic filmmaking. The comparison I would draw would be if you did a film about JFK and said, boom, headshot. Um, such an important topic does not deserve something being made slapstick and funny. I actually find that disrespectful to the people that were hurt by this. I don't believe it drew attention to the matter properly. There is a room for comic satire. You, I mean, I'm a big fan of Bill Hicks. And he does that whole thing about go back to bed, America, here's American Gladiator. But that's a stage performance. One of the scenes that I really disliked was the restaurant scene. Now, tonight, gentlemen, on the menu, we have abuse in Guantanamo Bay and we have uh, rights abuses and everyone, oh, yes, that sounds delicious. That can work in the theatre, but in my opinion on, on film, and I'm not a film graduate, I won't profess to be any kind of expert. For me, that is not suited to filmmaking. And I think you could have had a far better impact. As someone who's staunchly anti-Cheney, I believe the message would have been delivered far more effectively with a very serious film. Things like the fake ending credits and the jokes that are thrown in is what I did when I was 15 because I thought it made me look cool. Okay. Um, but we're meant to be grown-ups. This film is a 15 or an 18. It's meant to be seen by an adult audience. This is not meant to be the Muppet Storm the White House. So we're in an award season at the moment, and mm. technically we've got two political films. We've got Vice, which is irreverent, yeah. and for you doesn't work. And we've got The Front Runner, the Gary Hart story, which I've, is, not, I've not seen. Which, I must which is quite a serious, mm. and you know, it's a straightforward way of, of, of telling it. Now, and I appreciate you haven't seen it. What I would say is, 
we're now in the Oscar season. We're a couple of days away from the Oscars as we record this. And Vice is nominated for a whole host of things. The front runner is nominated for nothing. I think the difference between UK and America, I think they didn't know what he was like. I, don't, I genuinely don't think that they understood just how bad he was. And I think this is a film for Americans. By that logic, you're saying that Americans deserve to be patronised because they're too stupid to understand that he was corrupt. And I yeah. basically what you're presenting to the world is we're too stupid um, to actually document our politics appropriately. Let's do frat boy um, slapstick in order to appease other audiences and that's that's nonsense to me i hate that kind of kind of logic i i don't agree with that you know people use say the trump era to to typify america the fact is he lost the popular vote he won it through a quirk of the voting system which could also be said of the first bush government and indeed that is touched upon in vice and we've we've agreed that but the chap playing uh bush jr sam rockwell i'm told by the missus (laughs) <laughs> fantastic acting performance and the lady playing Mrs Cheney wonderful bits of acting there are some good things in Vice it does not mean it's a good piece of filmmaking it does not mean it's a good piece of political filmmaking if somebody did that about the Iraq war and was that irrelevant and had comic gun sounds every time somebody was shot down in Baghdad I would call it disrespectful and I would do the same here Guantanamo Bay was such an abhorrent abuse of human rights it should not be cheapened by something that makes the intelligentsia feel superior to everybody who voted for said clown. Okay. In contrast to that, I would say the irreverent approach and the fact that it's not a straightforward documentary, it's not a straightforward telling of the Bush Cheney story, makes it stand out more. Because there are so many documentaries, there's so much about this, but it's ignored. You know, the fact that Cheney did all this and up to now has not really been commented on to a great degree. I would challenge that. Cheney was the subject of huge amounts of uh, satire, academia and commentary during the time that he was in the Oval Office or influencing the Oval Office. What I might say in Vice's favour is how Cheney deliberately stayed under the radar during the 70s, shadowing Kissinger. That's a very important piece of history that people should learn. But we shouldn't pretend that Kissinger is forgotten by history. He's referenced by Basil Fawlty five times in Fawlty Towers. Yes. Yeah. So he was on the consciousness of everybody alive in the 70s. Cheney in the Bush administration brought up all the time, including when he shot somebody. There was a huge uproar about the fact that when he shot somebody at a social event, and then Vi- and that the film Vice acts as if everybody glossed over that. They did not, and that is doing a huge disservice to all the journalists I, I who don't called him out on that in the 2000s. They did. But what's shown in the film is the guy he shot later apologised for him shooting him, and that actually happened. Yeah, agreed, and you should bring light to that and treat it with the seriousness that the subject matter deserves. Just because something stands out does not mean that it stands out in a good way, and being different for different sake, um, I can't get behind that. I, I just... You know, Cheney is referenced in, in everything from Guardian columns in 03 to Bill Bailey stand-up shows about who's really pulling the strings in the, in the, in the Bush junior government. And we see, you know, the other um, Bush son who was drunk so he couldn't end up standing for president. These are all important issues in politics and worthy of an entire miniseries. And telling the story about Cheney's life, you could have won the Oscar with a proper documentary. The thing with that is... 
And you're right, there are many documentaries. I just think the irreverent approach is key. And this is why, from personal experience, we know of American and American audiences that are standing up and shouting at the screen during Vice because these very points that are being made are causing upset amongst Americans that maybe a straight documentary wouldn't do. And I don't think a straight documentary would get the coverage that this would, do, would get. I think I quickly wanted to address two political dramas based in the UK that I have seen recently, which is The Darkest Hour with Gary Oldman and The Iron Lady. And both of these have been very serious, very profound about very divided figures. So bear in mind, I, I, I'm a um, girl from the Northeast. I don't particularly like Margaret Thatcher. However, I thought that the documentary did her persona justice, as did Darkest Hour Winston Churchill. So basically, I feel that that, that, that kind of film is more appropriate for politics because they do such horrible things. And why should we be laughing at them like we're 16-year-olds? I find it incredibly inappropriate for all the people that have had to deal with the horrible things that came out of it. You don't see people laughing at the Iron Lady going, oh, look at the Falcons War, that's hilarious. Like, no, let's do it properly, let's do it justice. I'm, I'm sick of, of this frat boy filmmaking style that apparently gets you to the Oscars. It's just nonsense. Right. Hate it. Okay. <laughs> really but, hate that. But in, in response to that, I mean... I could take the darkest hour and the, the scene that annoyed a lot of people was the one where he took the subway train. But let's go back to Vice. And, and I understand what you're saying about sort of hating it. But the fact is, by treating it in an irreverent fashion, makes you concentrate on it. I didn't... I thought the film had moments of humour, but come the end of it, when I walked out, I was angry. I appreciated the filmmaking, so it was brilliant, mm. but I was still angry at this person and what he was should, able to get away with. Should I tell you what I was angry at? Go the on, obnoxious then. filmmaking that made me angry. That made me more angry than the subject matter, and is that not detracting from the subject matter? I think it is. You know, the fact that I was more angry at the Windows Movie Maker-style filmmaking than I was the man, that is a problem. I can't respect a film like that, quite frankly. Okay. And it's so, probably the most angry I've been on your podcast, so I do apologise. No, no, I, no, no, you don't but, need to apologise, because that's what we want. We but want I feel to, like to it just didn't resonate with me or, right. or my other half over there so, at all. It just didn't work. So what I'm interested in, and I appreciate that where we are at the moment, we've got differences of opinion... Mm. I would like, I've set the challenge to you both now, to go watch Adam McKay's The Big Short. Yes. And I would really be interested in having a discussion about that. Of course. I, want, I wanted to see that when it came yeah, out. So yeah, so we'll, yeah. we'll yeah. why don't we come back yeah. on and talk about that? Because no, no, I'm, I think I'm, next I'm month, sure we should both I, do that. I, I think next month all of us have this conversation sure. again about let's The Big it. Short. And let's see, because it's the same thing. It's an irreverent way of looking at... That financial crash, he calls in people like Margot Robbie to, to explain default credit swaps, you know, steps outside the action for it. So it's the same sort of thing, but with likeable characters. So let's see if it works. Fourth wall breaking in and of itself and talking directly to an audience about complex subject matter, I have no problem. I'm a big fan of the TV show Hustle. And there were scenes in there where they turn to the crowd and say, by the way, if you've never played Texas Hold'em poker, here's what all the hands mean. Yeah. But it's not done in a way that is patronising. It is not done in a way that cheapens the film's message. Panorama did it when Porsche and Volkswagen nearly bankrupted each other. They explained how, how short-selling shares works, which nobody really understands until you explain it to them. That's all fine. Again, it's what I call theatrical storytelling versus film storytelling. The argument here is not against the breaking of the fourth wall. 
the argument here is against the maturity of the argument made. It's not that I disagree with the message at all. And the fact that Cheney did so much in plain sight and he was allowed to get away with it and... I mean, we spoke before we were recording about the divisions in the Republican Party, and there's a huge difference between, um, you know, one of, one of Trump's biggest critics is Arnie, you know, within the party. This is not, we shouldn't pretend this is representative of all Republicans, either at a federal or a state or a, or a municipal level. What you see in the Iron Lady, for example, is you don't shy away from the divisions Thatcher caused in office, but you still have an old lady who has Alzheimer's and doesn't realize that her partner's died. And even people on the picket line were moved by Meryl Streep's performance of somebody being told day after day, your husband's died and that is the rest of their life. And nothing in Vice came close to that. OK, that's, that's interesting. And I think this is something we'll pick back up on after we've seen the big short, because I think the two films are linked and it'll be very interesting to complete this circle of this discussion at that mm. point. Yeah, and I think you'll see... The, the two films do link together. He's talking about a trilogy, but I, and, and I think this this all all links together. Okay, so this for our listeners is part one of an interesting debate, and it looks to be expanding the political films of Adam McKay. And next month we will pick up part two with the Big Short, and we will tie the whole thing together. Some interesting views there. Thanks, Lucy, and it was great to finally meet you. When I found you, your very human brain was miraculously intact. It's the loneliest feeling not to know who you are. In time, you'll remember. I remember black skies, the lightning all around me. Alita is new here. It's a harsh world down here. You gotta be willing to do what it takes. Alita, run! My God. She's threatening the natural order of things. I need you to destroy her. Alita, they will come for you. I'll have to face them head on. I'm gonna need you to stand way back. Tonight is not a game. It is a hunt. Our new review film intro, a little burst of dialogue, sound effects and music to give you a flavour of the film we're about to review. That's a good idea, Graham. It's certainly better than listening to Jeff drone on with his synopsis. And speaking of which, Attila <laughs> is set in 2563. Alita. Alita. Alita is set in 2563, I think my title's better. Where the world is a very different place. Devastated hundreds of years previously in a war called The Fall. The majority of the survivors live in Iron City, which is in the shadow of Zalim, the last of the sky cities. People scavenge to survive in the rubbish left over from the wars or discarded from the sky city itself. There, Dr. Dyson Idaho finds the head of a female cyborg with an intact female brain. Dyson, so that's where he went after Brexit. <laughs> Good point. The Fall is probably the future's name for Brexit now. <laughs> anyway, Dyson rebuilds the cyborg, calls her Alita, or if you prefer my version, Attila. No. no. Okay. After his dead daughter. Alita has no memories of her previous life. 
However, Dyson begins to realise she has skills and talents many had long thought lost forever. Graham, as someone who is probably aware of the source material, how does this film match up to that? Yeah, the, the source material is over 30 years old now. It worked very, very well. I thought the visuals were fantastic. I thought the full CGI rendering of Alita was excellent yeah, and really, really well with done. That. Yeah, I loved it. I really did. It had a, a sort of a weak ending and it was definitely a setup for a new one or another one or a sequel. On the whole, I thought it was just brilliant. It was definitely close to the comic book. Maybe it was maybe it too faithful. Is it possible to be? The criticism of it and people not going to it. It's interesting you say that because for once I do actually agree completely with what Graham said. That oh, blimey. I know, it doesn't happen often. So faithful to its source material in the fact that it's very fast-paced. And yeah, it just that's true. Runs at a runway, really. It just yeah. sort of stops. My other point is, it should have been called a tiller. <laughs> yeah, the ending is it's maybe a bit weak, but it just screaming out for a second episode, isn't? It? I think we've all been impressed by the visuals, but what about the acting? The lead actress, Rosa Salazar, I thought she was excellent. You could actually see the performance coming through the CGI from the actual actor, mm. very much like you can see Andy Serkis coming through in a lot of his performances uh, when he's taking on a full motion capture CGI character. I loved it. I thought she was very good. I thought the, her love interest, the, the lad, was a bit wet, um, and I was not impressed with him. But also with him, and, and that's one of the odd things. You're talking about things, you know, you take these motion capture characters and you believe them. So at the end of the film, spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen it, this character of Hugo loses his head and it's grafted onto one of these artificial creatures. And there you've got a mixture of clearly a real person's head and this motion capture. Yeah, And it just looks so odd. That bit did not work. They could have done with actually CGIing his head up a bit because yeah. I, I thought it was a bit of a jar and it had that sort of strange uncanny valley look to it. While she looked fine, she looked really, really good the whole way through. Very believable. So certainly one of the mainstream human actors put front and centre is Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I think he gives a good performance. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, he, um, yeah I mean, he's not given a vast amount to do. He's, he uh, does a lot of um, cutting people up. He does a lot of walking around at night. It's not a huge amount to do, is it? So essentially, I, mean, I didn't. I didn't think the boyfriend was that bad. I thought that was the sort of nature of the city, really. Problem I have with the boyfriend is probably hangs over from they did a animated series in about nineteen ninety four, and in that her boyfriend or her love interest then was terrible, absolutely right. it was shocking. And I think I probably carried a bit of prejudice through into this young lad. <laughs> Although I did like his motorbike. I thought his motorbike was yes. really cool. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, I thought it worked well. I thought the, the baddies were really good baddies and the and the goodies were really good goodies. And then, and then it just sort of, as you say, just sort of petered off at the end, which is a shame. Really sort of begging it to be a second episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll touch on that in a bit. But let's talk about the actor of the moment who's in this film, Masala <laughs> yes. Ali. Yeah. Um, he seems to be in everything these days. Now, to me, this is one of his weakest performances. He didn't really have it, a lot to it do. It wasn't a huge amount to do, was it? It and was same even... as um, same as uh, Christopher Waltz. Yeah. They weren't actually given a huge amount to do. Well, it's interesting what you said, Neil, because the way you described Christopher Waltz's performance reminded me immediately of what he was doing in Django Unchained. <laughs> We're not reviewing that one. No, I know, but it's the same performance, <laughs> isn't it, really? He's crept around a lot at night, 
did yeah. some really dubious things. Yeah. Okay. But he was essentially a good guy. And Ali yeah. uh, just didn't have enough to work with. Big problem with his character was most of the time he was possessed by somebody else. So he was playing a fairly robotic character while yes. he was being possessed. Yes. So he didn't get a chance to really shine at all. I mean, it's definitely no green book. No, no. and we'll be coming on to talk about that later. So that's interesting on the performances, and certainly a film like this that blends humans into this false landscape. There, the director has a lot to do. How do you think Robert Rodriguez coped with it? I thought it was brilliant from him. I mean, he picked this project mm-hmm. up from Cameron and ran with it. And really, it's very, very kinetic. A lot of it's, you know, high-speed action stuff. Yeah. OK, he's known for that and he does that well. But the motorball stuff was fantastic. Yes. And he really, really got that sort of 100% CGI. And it, and it looked and felt real and grounded and things crashed together and you could yep. actually felt like they were smashing into one another. I thought his direction particularly of the action scenes, was fantastic. Really, really sharp and well thought out. So you knew what was happening, you know, you followed the motion, you followed the action, things tracked correctly. I thought yeah. it was very well done. And it rattled along, didn't it? It did. The it pacing did, uh... was excellent. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think he shows that in other films that he's done, like Desperado from Dust Till Dawn. He has a real good sense of pulp comic timing. Yeah, mm. exactly. And combining that with this... Manga, I think that's what you call yeah, it. Isn't it's it? Manga. Yeah, yeah. It, it 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 comes through. I think his failing, and he did work on the script, is the last part of the film. I think they lose it at the end, and we'll come on and talk about that as we cover screenplay and themes. The screenplay worked very well for me. The, the source material was recreated very faithfully, and they and they stuck to that. No, I wouldn't say rigidly, but they certainly they pulled into the film the. F- the, the basis of the story from the manga so they didn't stick exactly to the manga but they built the world correctly and uh, everything was certainly reflective of what's in the source material yeah. so oh, i was, I quite, I was quite, quite pleased with that so you've Very both much. read the comic books then yeah no i haven't but i've read loads of stuff and loads of other people saying exactly the same thing Okay, and I believe Graham. I've read it. Yeah, yeah interesting. I mean, but he did build the well. The the it, well, it, well, it did. Wet, it was Wetter it, built it, the world, but yeah, yeah and, and it, was, it looked really, really. Good. But it was a fairly simple world. You got the the land beneath and the land above, and and therein is the first problem that I've got. You got a land below and a land above, but you never see the land above. No, and that's the second episode. Yeah, and I I think that's what they're going to do with the next one. I mean, they've jammed about six. Uh, episodes of the uh, the books together, maybe four. I'm being a bit too extreme there, but certainly four of the graphic novels they've crunched together into the first one, and I think the second one will be set Zalon. You're assuming there's going to be a second film. Well, I think everybody's hoping there'll be a second film because it yeah. was a damn good start. I mean, it had its problems, but it was an excellent start to a, a. It could be a really good trilogy, and Mr. Cameron does like his trilogies, doesn't he? Yeah, but let's look at one of those problems—the big one for me, which is the whole basis of the villain, the hero, and the villain should meet in the yeah. last act. They yeah, never yeah. do. No. Now, had Mr. Ali been the centre villain, and mm. you didn't know he was being controlled up until the very end that would have made a good chapter break yeah the fact you knew quite early on that other people that you know he was a puppet for a puppet master yeah and these two never meet i just think the whole ending just falls falls apart it sort of stops mid-flow and that's just bollocks basically (laughs) 
I think the the problem they have is that in the source material, there's this sort of brooding menace above them, and they try to portray that. And if they didn't portray this sort of evil person from the past who lives above them, they'd really struggle with that. So it's it's a hard call, and they I think they really are, were saying, okay, we'll we'll answer that in the next one if we get a next one. And and there's your problem. If you look at films like The Hunger Games, The Hunger Games, the first one, is almost complete in itself. Yeah. Exactly. It's standalone. It yeah. does stand alone, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and films like and Neil, one of your favourites, uh the Golden not so much the film but the books, The, the Golden, Golden Compass, Compass, yes. It just it, it doesn't even it even the book cheats. kind of leaves it open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the but, book ends on a shocking moment, doesn't it? Yes. The first one. Yes. And they couldn't even do that. With no no detail about it, no. but yes, they uh, no they completed it. But yeah, it it allows the the producers or whoever gives them the money to say, no, we don't want to give you anything more. I suppose this forces them. I mean, there hasn't made its production budget yet. Yeah. Um, do we know what it's made yet? Yeah, as of this evening, uh, its worldwide gross is about two hundred and sixty. Yeah. So its it production was about one hundred and seventy. So it's not doing too bad. It needs to. I would say it needs to earn over four hundred mil to to then start turning them a healthy profit. There was a huge amount of um, advertising as well, wasn't there? And yeah, yeah, it needs to double its money really to, yeah. before they'll get another one. And if it's has it opened in China, do we know? It uh, took a sixty two mil on its <laughs> opening weekend in China, wow. so that's good. Yeah, um, and Japan. Because that's that's one of the targets. Yeah, it's one of the targets. That may obviously. be the difference then. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think I think they're going to get another one. Good. I don't. I Good. really don't. I, and I think not only because it's going to make money, but not make that much money. You've also got to factor in that this is a Fox film, and it's now being taken over by Disney. Yeah. And I can't see Disney want to do another True. one of these. Yeah, Possibly. So it's a very interesting point. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. We shall see. But all in all, if I was looking at this in a holistic view, I think it's a very good start. Yes, it had a few problems at the end, but it certainly captured the character, it captured the world, it captured the uh, kinetic uh, energy of the manga, it reproduced that very well. People were freaked out by our big eyes, but hey, that's what it looks like in the manga. Um, I thought the world building was exceptional from Weta. It did look lived in, it did look dirty, yes. it did look scruffy in places. Yeah, um, definitely. And certainly quite um, quite futuristic in a sort of retro way. So I thought the world building was very, very good. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and using another camera, one avatar, I think it, mm. it created a world, and mm. I, I think that's fair. I mean, even the character of Achilla was... Um, was Elita. Was was quite good, and I loved the pop references to things like RoboCop and Rollerball. Yes, the Rollerball, the Rollerball was absolutely awesome, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, and I could see that, and even the chanting uh, was very reminiscent of Rollerball. Yeah, so yeah, that was very good. Like that. Yeah, didn't need CGI for that though, did you? <laughs> and I think that goes into the cinematography. They bring in somebody like Bill Pope, who's got a history of these things, mm. like you know the first Matrix movie and Spider Man. And again, it all helps in the world building. I just think that, you know, we can talk all night about the technical issues. And I think we're all going to agree yeah. that it's all good. It's just for me, the story fell short. But only in the last 
Only in the terror. last bit. Only in the last bit. It no, faded. It faded, yeah. It, I yeah. mean, it, it came to a conclusion, and then they tacked on a little bit at the end, and I just don't think that worked. Okay. I, also, I just wanted to mention Jennifer Connelly. Um, I thought she yeah. was so underused. Yes. So underused. Bland. Very bland. Very bland. Mm. Very, you know, she's, she's a good actress. She's got great range. She can deliver, you know, interesting characters. And she was given nothing to work with. That was really disappointing. Mm. As I say, all of the, the uh, real people the real were people given a were huge a, amount of amount to deal with, weren't yeah. they? Yeah. Okay, well, that's what we've been thinking. Graeme, what have our listeners been having to say about this? So we've had some comments from a long-time listener and friend of the pod, Phil Foster, from Phil the Bear's blog. And Phil says, It has two minor drawbacks that the average filmgoer would need to be aware of. Firstly, it is trying to cram a multitude of storylines into a two-hour running time, and as a result, some of them feel underdeveloped. Secondly, as is the case for a lot of 1990s Japanese anime, it has a major case of style over substance with overly simplistic character behaviours. This should be a minor discouragement from those seeking a visually stunning slice of cyberpunk action. What's cyberpunk? That's a fair question. I don't know the answer. Right. So, cyberpunk is a sub-genre of science fiction. And basically, it's very dystopian. So people have incredibly advanced technology, but everything's falling to pieces around them. Right. Cyberpunk comes from uh, the early 1980s when people like William Gibson wrote in a very, very different style to any science fiction that could come before. There was lots of gangsters, lots of street crime, lots of very, very advanced tech stuck in people's heads, but they used it for criminal activities. It's a very sort of... It's almost like film noir was a, a very different take on sort of big cities and crime in big cities and things like that. It's more of a technological noir stuff. Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. Totally good. I've learned something there. So what do we think, guys? Oh, fast-paced, enjoyable, maybe um, a little little rush through lots of storylines. Um, as we said, the, uh, the, the, the actual... Uh, human people didn't get a lot, but uh, Alita was good and uh, loved the rollerball. Uh, maybe a little rushed, but yeah. And and the the ending was just a bit meh. A bit meh. Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I, I've got to agree with you there, Neil. Like, Thank you very much. Uh, up to the last 20 minutes, then it just fell apart. If they make a sequel, could we call it, you know, Attila versus Gollum? That no. would be great to bring them back together. Maybe that is who is waiting up in the city for her. Oh, yeah, Gollum. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Gollum. And Attila. Yeah. Attila. <laughs> Whoever he is. Great. She is. All right. But so, in conclusion, I really liked it. I thought it was well done. I thought it was... A huge improvement on the uh, anime versions in the 1990s. I was very pleased with everything I saw. I'm hoping, desperately hoping, that there's a, another one in the series. I liked the central character. I thought the actress who played Alita uh, did a fantastic job in uh, motion capture and she really threw her heart and soul into it. Hopefully we'll get another one. Yep, it gets solid recommendation from me. I think it's an excellent movie to go and see. So if you enjoyed Alita Battle Angel and want, to, <laughs> and want to watch something in a similar vein, I would probably recommend Avatar, also uh, by Cameron. Again, incredible world building, uh, very different, completely motion capture. Right, 
on to Jeff's review next. Uh, you're reviewing Green Book, Jeff. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's going to be problems. Promise me you're going to write me a letter. Dear Dolores. I saw Dr. Shirley play the piano. He's like a genius, I think. How does he smile and shake their hands like that? Because it takes courage to change people's hearts. What are you doing? A letter. May I? Dear Dolores, sometimes you remind me of a house. You know this is pathetic, right? Put this down. The distance between us is breaking my spirit. Falling in love with you was the easiest thing I have ever done. P.S. Kiss the kids. That's like clinging a cowbell at the end of Shostakovich's seven. And that's good. It's perfect, Tony. Come on, get out. You never win with violence. You only win when you maintain your dignity. Your own people. You, Mr. Big Shot, doing concerts for rich people. So if I'm not black enough, and if I'm not white enough, then tell me, Tony, what am I? Don't you tell me? Based on the true story of two extraordinary men in the early 1960s, there is Frank Vallelonga, or as is better known in New York Italian American circles, Tony Lip a tough bouncer with a reputation of being able to talk his way out of anything. Then there is a renowned concert pianist, Dr Don Shirley. Cultured, he lives above Carnegie Hall and black. When the club Tony Lip works in is closed during the winter for renovations, he takes an eight-week job of driving Dr Shirley to a series of concerts in the Deep South. Uh, Fame for its racial tolerance at that time, not... And the uh, Jim Crow laws. Jim Crow laws. Absolutely. However, over the course of this, at times, frightening journey, these two very different men slowly begin to understand each other. Jeff, were you impressed by this award-winning film? Certainly was, Neil. So far, it's my film of the year. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I am being increasingly sickened by the amount of American films coming out that trivialises the history of black Americans in the 20th century, almost forgetting that segregation ever happened. You take a film like this, and I know it's been criticised in some circles, but I think it's been criticised unfairly, that shows that journey through a still-segregated America in the early 1960s and how these two men come to understand each other. I think it's marvellous. Yeah, the Jim Crow laws, um, the segregation... The the idea of the segregation was that there would be two things and they would be of equal value. Yes. And which obviously wasn't. I know there are criticisms of some of the places they stayed in because the Green Book actually provided a lot better better uh, accommodation that was available. But, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's a road trip. It's showing what the South was like in the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s. I also loved this film. I thought it was brilliant. The fact that something like the Green Book itself actually existed... Had had to exist, yeah. ...was just disgusting. And, And you think... Who the hell wrote this? It was a shock, wasn't it? Yeah, and I had to research it. And it was actually written to help black people get through the South. I thought it was something produced by white people to say, don't come near where we are. But it was actually 
a sort of a safety guide for yeah. black people in the South. It was unbelievable. Now, I honestly don't know the answer to this question I'm about to ask. Did we have anything like it in the UK? I don't think so. There was a gen- it was a decided separation, though. It was a it was a law, wasn't it? And they they had to. It took till the seventies and eighties to actually get rid of it all. Well, yeah, and yeah. you argue that some of it's still happening because oh, of the absolutely. voting, not actually uh, <clears throat> black people not being able to vote in the and the fact that we still have a movement called Black Lives Matter. Yeah, it's not not great. Okay, so let's talk about performances then. Now, I don't think there's a bad performance in this film. Viggo Mortensen, guys, what did he do for you? I thought he was brilliant. Fantastic. I really thought he was brilliant. It was like, it was, not only was it very laid back uh, in places, but the physical uh, things he had to do, like the constant eating... And talking while he was eating. Why he didn't choke to death while he was filming this is beyond me. Yeah. And he just played the character. You could see the character. You could say, here's a, a sort of a tough New York Italian man who, who obviously loves his family but can't express it very well, uh, who wants to do the right thing but is trapped in his society. So when it starts off, he is... A little bit racist, maybe quite racist. No, to no, the 21st he is a little bit racist. Twenty-first yeah. century eyes is a bit racist. Well, casual racism, I think, is what you call I it. I think, back yeah, I think casual racism would probably, or maybe institutional racism. You know, I thought he was just fantastic. The physical, uh, the physicality of his acting, the amount of weight he had to put mm. on. He does look a bit of a slob in it, a lot of the time. It was just excellent, it, and the the accent never slips. It was his ability, really, wasn't it, to not as a Scandinavian to be able to do a, <laughs> yes. do a New York Italian American accent while eating and driving, yes, or pretending to drive with a yeah. screen behind, and maintain that all while while doing the script and yeah. reacting to Marshall Ali's uh, comments as well. Yeah, but here's the thing: Viggo Mortensen normally plays silent, heroic. Characters. Yeah. Mm. You've got Aragorn in yeah. Lord of yeah. the Rings. Yeah. You've got the gangster in Eastern Promises. Yeah. Yep. Here you've got this guy. Who's the opposite. Ab- <laughs> but exactly. Yeah. To, to an extent. Well, no, he's not really opposite because he's still, you know, as tough as he is in those other films. Yeah. Yes. But he's got this added dimension. He's called Tony Lip because he can talk his way out of anything. Yep. He never stops talking. He never stops no. talking. No. Or eating. <laughs> or eating. Yeah. But talking generally. And, you know. <laughs> talking th- while eating. Yeah. And. The one time the mask slips is when he's accused in... Or when he's called out in racist terms. That's the one time the mask slips. And he just immediately reacts and goes back to basics and just punches the guy who who delivered a racial slur to him. And gets told off for it. Yes. And that is the... In actual fact, that punch, when he punches the policeman, is the pivotal point. Yeah. Because at that point... Everything in the the story changes, and I just loved it. And I liked, and we'll probably come on to it, there were lots of things in the story that were very small, very subliminal, but were really, really clever, and I enjoyed those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely an eye to detail. Okay, so this is a road movie, and it's about two characters, and we've spoken about Vigo. Mm. What about Mr Ali? What are your thoughts? Fantastic. I... I mean, given he's in pretty much everything that's in that's going at the moment. Yes, um, even Attila. Yeah, yes. Alita. 
um, and his yeah his 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 ability to to be so aloof. And he was in True Detective. Oh, he's, he's yeah, he's obviously got abilities. Oh, he's in Moonlight, and he obviously has talent, and he obviously is seen as as having talent. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's so aloof. So I, I thought he was he was great because he not only was he very aloof, and he was literally a backseat driver, <laughs> and very annoying, but he was so charming. Yes, and you warmed to utterly. him almost immediately, and you thought, "Oh, this guy's going to have problems in the south." And guess what? He did have problems in the south, but he handled it so well. And even when um, there's a bit of a twist around his sexuality at one point in the story, I thought that was brilliantly handled as well. And the fact that they both become so close to one another by that point that that didn't really affect their relationship. I just thought that was so well played. And, you know, when he when he was looking um, at Tony Lip for encouragement and he was looking at Tony Lip uh, f- for uh, justification, I just thought it, the two of them played it together and he yeah. played it so well. I love so the way that the big smile came on yes. as soon as it was yeah. required. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't in the eyes. Yeah. It was just the smile. smile. And the best way that this friendship and the development relationship was shown is by the letters. He's helping yes. him out. Yeah. And then, you know, as Tony gets more and more with it and what he can write, yeah. it just gives him little pointers here or there and that mm. carries all the way through. And, Talking of the letters, and those go back to Tony's wife, yeah. played in the movie by uh, Linda Cardellini, best known, of course, for playing uh, Thelma in the Scooby-Doo movies. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. But, well, yeah. yeah. But also, you know, she's <laughs> yeah, a great no, actress. you're right. Yeah, yeah yes. she's a great actress. She was in one of Graham's favourite films, Daddy's Home 2. <laughs> a real high point yeah, in her career yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah. But also in a simple favour, you know, and, and she oh, yes. just genuinely mm. plays these completely different roles and you almost don't notice her in the film. But the point I want to make with her performance is we speak a lot about the race and the two men and how they get over it, but also there's a female perspective that comes in and it's very subtly shown in this film. We we spoke a bit about the two two black workmen that come in, they both yes. have a drink. He takes the glasses out of the sink and throws them in the bin. She opens the bin at a point later on, sees the glasses and retrieves them. So you immediately know, without a word being spoken, where both those characters And she reside. engaged the two black people to come in and fix the sink, didn't yes. she? So she she had yeah. no problems with that. And I think it was it was him coming round to that that was one of the other points. And and this film is is very circular. There there are constant repeating themes in in this film. So and there's balance in this film, which I thought was really really subtly done. So you have the bad cops, you have good cops. But but just staying with Linda Cardinelli for a minute, it goes full circle at the end. And again, it's understated, but the look of pleasure in her face mm. and her eyes, yeah. you know, with the fact that her husband has made the leap that she had already done, yeah. I thought was tremendous. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, I just think the whole thing was well done. I like the little piece with the, the lucky rock and the constant <laughs> backwards and forwards of who knows the lucky rock exists and where is the lucky rock. I just thought it was just the fun little things like that. I love the when uh, they went to the saloon at the end with all the black people in there and he played jazz with the band and I thought that was yeah. just great. And then, he, you know, from that, he's 
he's he's welcomed and he's accepted and his music is appreciated and yet his music was appreciated by the white audience as well. Only but if his he was present, playing, yes. playing simple tunes. Yes, but if he what? But it wasn't accepted in anywhere else. You're okay in front of the the piano, but don't go in the bathroom. Yeah, it was yeah. wonderful, very clever. And don't play anything complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the biggest surprise with this film: we've all obviously we all enjoy it. Great performances, good script. And let's look at the director who brought this together. It's Peter Farrelly, the yeah. guy that did something about Mary and, and me, my... myself, and Irene. Yeah. And and I think what he brings to this film, which is a serious subject, mm. but the amount of comedy that's in it, and the, the amount light, of lines, lightness of touch as well, absolutely. And that lightness of touch yeah. is very deceptive with some of the heaviness of the material. And makes it much more palatable. And there is some great uh, unspoken things in it. There's a lovely sequence where they the car breaks down. Viggo Mortenstern gets out and fixes the car. And while he's there, Ali gets out of the back of the car uh, and walks around to get a breath of fresh air beside a field with black people working in the field, almost like they probably are the grandchildren of slaves and they're mm. still working in the cotton fields. And they look across the road and they see this white man opening the door to let this black man in. It must have looked like these people had arrived from Mars to them. Yeah. They'd never seen this before. And that was just beautiful. There wasn't a word spoken in that scene. It just what happened and then it moved on. I yeah, he let, he let them, gave them time to yeah. develop things, didn't yeah. they? I mean, there was the criticism that it wasn't darker. Uh, as this as the source material really is quite dark, but Peter Farrelly said that actually he didn't want to do that. He wanted to make it lighter, so it was a uh, because it's his a his style and b so that we can see exactly what's happening and what's yeah. going on. I think it's more powerful because it's not dark. I think because mm. that lightness makes it more palatable, more acceptable, and more engaging, and you get yeah. the messages. It yeah. doesn't beat you over the head with a mallet. Exactly, yeah. and that comes into again all the screenplay uh, as well you know Farrelly directs it light make sure there's a lot of humor in there that offsets that darkness but we know it's based on you know real people there is some argument over the source material that Tony Lip's son said he based this on conversations he had with Dr Shirley and his dad Dr Shirley's family dispute this I don't think that matters because what you've captured is that moment in America you know we talk about world building we talk about world building in Alicia and I think the world building here and the way it recreates that 1960s, not only in look, but in attitude. Yeah, the attitude is very, very good. I mean, they didn't have much budget. You know, yeah. there's a couple of shots in New York, which uh, New York looks very 1960s, and I mm. thought that was brilliant, especially when they got across the uh, the bridge out of New York and there was n- no skyscrape. I'm not sure if it's my top film of the year, but it's no, certainly, it's certainly close. Mine. I, I just love that fact that it deals... Unlike a lot of films, certainly American films at the moment, particularly those stupid superhero things where you resolve <laughs> everything with violence, this is about standing up with dignity. Yes. And, you know, the the moment we spoke earlier about the scene where he punches the policeman yep. and then, you know, Dr. Shirley gives him hell for that. He said, you know, what yep. you've done is cheapened. You've lost by yep. punching him. And then proves it because he has a much cleverer way of getting them out of prison, which yeah. I won't spoil you for anybody that hasn't seen the film yet. And the fact that one of the reasons for uh, Marsha Ali's uh, character going down to the Deep South to play music 
which, quite frankly, could play a lot better up in Carnegie Hall the rest of his life, really. But he insisted on it because of one of the reasons that Nat King Cole got beaten up by the KKK in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And he wanted to sort of say, no, this isn't something that we shy away from. We should face these things. They shouldn't win. And, you know, the most quotable line of dialogue in the film, you never win with violence. Mm. You only win... And you maintain your dignity. Okay, so Jeff, come yeah. on, let's talk about the music, and because there's a lot of music in this, is there actually a score? Because I loved, I loved that the, the the dichotomy of the music. So you had these very formal uh, concert pieces, and then you had all these sort of uh, brilliant early '60s music. And yeah. the music in the car was the mu- they, that was it, the music in the car as he's trying to educate him on the uh, on black black people's music. I thought yeah. it was just really funny. Yeah, 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 music is very important in yeah. this world. And a lot of it is source material. It is some original score, but that's not what stands out. So the film opens in the club, and ironically you hear playing That Old Black Magic. That's the yeah. first track yeah. of the film. But then you go through almost, you know, you got Viggo Mortensen teaching Dr Shirley about rock and roll music. Yes. What does it mean? Uh, and then you've got him learning on the other side of the concert music and he says you know only you can do that no other people can do it so in in a way that you've got black and a white character working together and and you're quite right you've also got this underlying theme of an appreciation of music and how you get into other people's world by the way you appreciate their music now that doesn't mean i'm ever going to listen to rap music that's one world i don't want to be part of but in in the context of this film that works really well. I love the throwaway lines like, you don't know who Little Richard is. You know, there's a white guy lecturing a guy who can play the piano and you don't know who Little Richard is. And then when they get to the bar at the end or the saloon at the end and he starts playing some concert <laughs> music and then puts in a little bit of Little Richard flourish yes. into his piece and I thought that was just great. Yeah. great. So, yeah, he did find out who Little Richard was, yeah. Not only yes, our listeners, uh, a lot of our listeners have seen this film. Now... Phil Foster's had a few words to say about it. I know Phil is not a great supporter of this film winning the Oscar for Best Film, but Phil, you're wrong. Um, (laughs) And Phil says it's a humorous, feel-good movie that highlights racism that is not too far in our past and seemingly more present now than we should like. A film that is certainly worth your attention. From Jay, the racial tension and unsettling backdrop of segregation in the Deep South during the 60s is cleverly implied rather than sensationalised with heavy-hitting scenes and is well counterbalanced with a Farrelly-infused sense of levity. Fortified with breathtaking musical performances from Ali and an infectious soundtrack, Green Book is a well-placed film at a runtime of just over two hours and one which does an effective job of reminding us that people are always more interested than prejudiced when the opportunity of time and proximity are made available. A very good comment. It's yeah. a really good comment. Thank you, Jay. You like the film more than Phil. So, guys, let's sum up. Came out thinking, well, we re- everybody should really watch yeah. this film, just as a. But it's more for me. It was more of a documentary. That's a, that's an interesting yeah. point. Uh, it so- had that feel of a documentary rather than a cinematic experience, but the documentary worked extremely well. Although I did like the cinematic 
effects. I did like the mm. cinematography. It was all pastels th- and everything, wasn't it? it? Which sort of, um, yeah, I, okay, I can see Peter Farrelly not really wanting to do the darkest of films. No. But it was a very sort of light tone and keeping everything up, you know. Yeah. Concentrate on the people, concentrate yeah. on the people. It's not that. It's not Driving Miss Daisy. It's not bland. No, no. There's some real point to it. There's great performances. It's entertaining. And it gives you a little bit of life without ramming it down your throat. And yeah, it's brilliant. not 12 Years a Slave as well. You know, that, yeah. that's 12 Years a Slave, really hard-hitting. Yes. Yeah, I've got the message. Thank you. There I've, is, I've, I've there got is, the message again and again and but again. But there is room in, in the cinematic fold for yes. Driving Miss Daisy, for 12 Years a Slave, for the one I've already forgotten. And for <laughs> Moonlight. Book, Moonlight. 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 But and it, for, so... There, there is room in for that, and I think it exists because it should do. But I would give you a strong argument that 12 Years a Slave whitewashes it itself because there's a really serious issue in Solomon's book that is just not dealt with in the film, and that is around the character, the reverend character, as played by Benedict Cumberbatch. He writes of him, and he, in his book he says, if all slave owners were like this, then slavery wouldn't be such a problem. Now, that absolutely, that's really controversial. So how did, they, how did Steve McQueen deal with it? He made the Benedict Cumberpatch character weak in the film. And you've avoided the issue by doing that. It's mm. something that you need to talk about. Slavery is wrong. There's no question that yep. on any level it's wrong. Yet when somebody who's in that system, is that Stockholm, you know, is that Stockholm Syndrome that's making him say that? Because he'd been in that system for a number of years by that stage. Did he really genuinely believe that about that chap? Yeah. It's an issue you've got to talk about because mm. if you don't solve that problem and understand it, it could happen again. And that's always the worry yeah. that we slip back as yeah. a society. But let's not get too heavy. This has a lightness of touch, deals with a heavy subject. I think it's brilliant so far, my film of the year. No, I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was excellent. And I hope it wins an Oscar for yeah. something. Something, yeah. 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 Well, we'll know shortly. Don't crease those suits, lads. Okay, if you like Green Book, then you may also like these movies. Lovin, the true story of Richard and Mildred Lovin, who got married when interracial marriage in parts of the States was illegal. And this also was in the 1960s. Yeah, it's a great film, great film. Mm. Driving Miss Daisy, okay, we've disparaged it a little bit. (laughs) But this Oscar-winning film is charming about a relationship between a white woman and a black chauffeur. Just don't expect any great depth from it. We've also once or twice thrown in about much darker films and darker approaches to the material. Well, if you want that, go watch Mississippi Burning. Gene Hackman stars in the true story, which shows some of the real horrors of racial inequality in 60s America. And finally, another black and white mismatched team, 48 Hours. (laughs) Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. It's still not politically correct, no. but it's great fun. No. Okay. Let's... A lot of these films are set in the 60s, aren't they? Set 48 hours, set in the 80s. Yeah, but loving, Mississippi burning. And I would add to that list, actually, Hidden Figures, which I thought was yes. wonderful. Cool. Fantastic. Call. Right, and now we move on to our next film, which is The Lego Movie 2. The second part. Set five years after the events of the first Lego movie. Once, everything was awesome. Now, everything is bleak. Hey, Lucy! I brought you coffee! Coffee. The bitter liquid that provides the only semblance of pleasure left in these dark times. Oh my goshness! Did I interrupt you brooding just now? This is all my fault. 
Hang on to your fronds, Planny. We're going to save Lucy. Don't you tell me to... The name's Rex Danger Vest. Galaxy-defending archaeologist, cowboy, and raptor trainer. <laughs> I don't get it. Will you help me rescue my friends? You don't want to go anywhere near the Sistar system. It's ruled by an alien queen. Only the toughest are going to get out of there alive. Hey, guys. No, go back. The horse was much more palatable. I got a big phone and a play phone. I got to get it, baby. No, it did not. A1, hit him with the A1 song. Since day one, not the A1 song. Are you? I'm your worst nightmare. You're me when I'm late to school and I forgot my homework and my pants are made of pudding? Jeff, how come you're talking about the plot of the film? <laughs> Finn's younger sister, Bianca, is now creating a world of her own with a mixture of Lego and Duplo. Uh, Jeff, where are you getting this detail how do from? You no. Know? Oh, Gibson you know? off. <laughs> in the Lego world, this combination has resulted in an apocalypse called the Apocalypse Berg. Still, Emmett remains upbeat and sings Everything is Awesome. Neil, what are your thoughts on this cartoon? Well, the original Lego movie was was new, fun, and it exploded onto the scene. It was fantastic. Everything was made of Lego. The yep. song Everything Was Awesome really got into your head. Um, it, it flew along. It was a good story. It was fun. The jokes were all flying in from everywhere. And it really was good. And so I kind of kind of didn't have the same excitement leading up to it. So maybe I, I, I lowered my expectations. I, I definitely, I thought, OK, here we go. This is going to be just more of the same. More of the same. And, 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 it, and of course it doesn't live up to the first movie. The first movie obviously just was fantastic. Go on, Jeff. I thought it was better than the first movie. Yeah. You didn't see You haven't see seen either it. of them. No, Jeff. I haven't. You haven't no. seen I, either. I meant to. I meant to see them. I yeah. was ill. Yeah, yeah, you just make it up. Yeah, uh, but but then again, it is funny. It's we. It, I think you went with you. I went with you, didn't yes, I, you Graham? Did. And yeah. it was if you'd come too, you'd have seen it, Jeff. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, I, I was I was hoping to, but at that point, you know, I was trapped in the toilet. I was trapped, trapped in, the in the toilet. Anyway, it, it, there's jokes everywhere. There's in jokes galore, visual humour, songs, fun for everyone. It's a real sugar rush. It was. Very, very well done. For a second movie, they knew they were a sequel. That was part of the joke. Yeah. I just thought they they did a great job when they wrote this. And they took it to the next level, but left all your favourite characters in there. So Emmett was still stupid. Um, Lucy was, you know, super strong, but we learn other things about her past. Batman was hysterical again. Yeah. And... You know, it just was really, really well done. <laughs> and even the end credit sequence was hilarious. Yes, I the song really, at the end of the credits is just this great. is the best bit. Yeah. You've <laughs> got to stay for the for the end credits because that was very, very funny. Yes. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? It's it's not intellectually challenging. It's just a good it's 90 a kids minutes. Film. That's probably why I didn't see it. <laughs> it it's a kid's film, but uh, there's a hell of a lot for adults. It wasn't intellectually challenging, and but for Jeff, his time <laughs> probably would have been. His time was intestinally challenging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go on, <laughs> so, for any of our listeners out there who may sort of be suffering from similar things that I was, 
You've got my sympathy. <laughs> Not ours. As far as voice acting goes, Chris Pratt is, well, Chris Pratt. Uh, Elizabeth <laughs> yes, Banks was. and Will Arnett are good. Um, it's nice to see Maya Rudolph as the kid's mum. I don't think Will Ferrell was really in it this time. I didn't no, he see wasn't. Him, no. There was a voice off, and voice that was off, about it. Yes. Uh, Noel Fielding as Belsazar, a sparkly vampire describing himself as an attractive and non-threatening teen vampire, <laughs> Edward Cullen. Uh, yeah, very, very good. All very good. But the standout, I thought, was Tiffany Haddish as uh, Queen Whatever and Wannabe. Get it? Whatever or Wannabe. But, yeah, she um, was great. <laughs> in the sister system, the yeah. sister system. Yeah, it very good. was very funny, and she kept changing shape yes. all the time. I'll and... be whatever I want to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but unlike the first movie, there's a cast of thousands, isn't it? it Some was. of which only get one line, like yeah. uh, Batman and uh, and uh, Green Lantern. Yes. Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill. Hang on, are you telling me this is a superhero movie? There are superheroes in it. Oh, thank Including yes. Superman. It's DC. It's got a whole load of DC yeah, stuff yeah. in it. Yeah. How many superhero movies we got this year? 20,000. It's not a superhero movie. No, it's got little, Emmett as the lead. Oh, right. The little Lego superhero. The exact opposite of a superhero. Okay, so you've got... You've already said Superman, Batman, Green, Green Lantern. Lantern. Have, Are they have, not superheroes? Have one or two lines each. Yeah, and they're... That's too many now. And they're made of plastic. Well, that's the part That's the part of the end credits, isn't it? Where yes. they start singing, oh, these are the voice actors. They have to work really hard four hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody escapes the wrath of the end credits <laughs> in no, this movie. No, indeed. In a song, too. So, uh, director Mike Mitchell keeps everything going. It's it's not Phil Lord and uh, Christopher Miller doing the uh, directing anymore. It's, no. it's They put in uh, Mike Mitchell to do it. He moves along fast pace. It whips, yeah. whips through it. Yeah. Um, so it's a reasonably good plot, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, a, and it's the children driving it. And the other thing is that we had quite a really good cinematic experience watching this. It was full of adults. Yes, or, or sh- or, and people were crying. Chuckling the laughter. Away, weren't they? <laughs> and there was yeah, a lady to the left of me who got all the jokes. She was obviously <laughs> a big Lego fan because she was laughing at places, and I was going, "Oh yeah, oh, right now I get it." Yes, <laughs> yeah, very good. Kind of Ardman experience, really, with the jokes yes. everywhere. Everything written down. Everything. All yes. the, the stuff everywhere is a joke somewhere. It's plentiful, funny. Uh, the moral, of course, is uh, love friends for who they are, not what you want them to be, and play together and accept people for who they are. That could be Green Book. Uh, <laughs> as, as with the number one, the kids drive the narrative, it's their toy, the two children fight, and the sort of story descends into a battle. And it was very well done. Yeah. And the, 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 the moral... Uh, compass in it is not overused it's quite gentle mm. they don't draw big conclusions from anything it's you know don't fight with your sister try and work together and i thought it was just fine yeah play together fine. and everything is uh, awesome yep yeah. <laughs> everything's As, uh, uh, and uh, they even have a song in it called this song is going to get stuck in your head it, which doesn't and that's my main complaint is that actually it doesn't get stuck in my head because yeah, no. i still can't remember the tune for it yeah. it's called catchy song is it called Catchy Song? Right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just... That's probably my biggest disappointment. There is a song called Everything's Not Awesome, awesome. with the line, Whoa, I think I finally get Radiohead. 
<laughs> and it's a great. It's really quite funny. I mean, there's a lot more songs in it than the last one. Yes. So they do. At one point, song. even um, what to, I think it's Batman goes. Wait, this isn't a musical. Yes. <laughs> self-referencing. <laughs> a Jeff, lot of you're going to comment even though you haven't seen it. No, no, I'm just saying you guys clearly had a blast watching well, it. Well, it was great. Yeah, 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 yeah it's great. It yeah, and I can't but... wait for it to come out on download so, you know, I can then freeze frame and look at some of the things that are going oh, yes. on in the background because there was such a lot of stuff it, flying With past. IMDB ready to yes. all the quotes that people think of, yes. you may be updated as well. So what have our listeners been saying about it? Some of the listener comments. Uh, Phil Foster... Just like the original film, it it also has a family film message with the brother and sister needing to learn to play together. Whilst adding Maya Rudolph as mum, while Will Ferrell's dad is comically absent. On the negative side, it does struggle to live up to the brilliance of the original. But if you temper your expectations, there is a lot to like here. I am with you on all of that, Phil. So sum up, Graham. I thought it was great. I had very low expectations when I went in. Uh, and it certainly exceeded all of those yeah. within the first few minutes. Uh, I loved the fact that they knew there were a sequel and, and they just played with that constantly. Um, I liked, uh, I, I always liked the Batman character. I just think he's <laughs> so funny. And he's, <laughs> at one point, he says, How famous are you? I've got. No, m- you, you're, uh, Lucy says, I'm in charge. And he says, well, You're in charge. Who could you in charge? I've got six films about me, and three in production. <laughs> <laughs> which was great great line for me yes yes hugely funny um it's time to miss the oscars which is odd but the original did the same five years ago uh disney have won the last seven oscars for best animated feature and they've won 12 of the 17 and spirited away was distributed by them so pretty much 13 of the 17 but it'll still be one of the best animated feature films of the year and we've it's- been spoiled this year we yes. have been spoiled by animated films yeah. this year. What, this year? This year. We really, got, what we got? In the last 12 months. In the last 12 oh, months. Oh, right, OK, had, that's not this year then, is yeah, it? Spider-Man. Yeah. Into the Spideyverse, <laughs> which Spider-Man. I should win the Oscar. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. And, yeah, and the other one is the Japanese one with the little boy who doesn't accept his sibling, his little sister, oh. which I've forgotten the name of the film. This will come back to me, don't worry. Yeah, so that's also up for an Oscar. Yeah. Great year for uh, animated films. Yes, it doesn't have wow Lego of uh, the first uh, film, but uh, still very much worth watching. And I'm definitely going to have to watch it again and again and again. So recommended films, uh, Lego Movie 1, Jeff. Um, Better sequels, obviously, Paddington 2 and Toy Story 2. I've uh, seen them. And uh, there's loads of Lego stuff around. There's yeah. uh, the Batman Lego, the Justice League Lego. There's all sorts. Do you know what, Neil? If they did Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League, <laughs> I'd let in them... Lego. Oh, I don't care. I'd let them have their No Deal Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. So, movie of the month, right, guys? Time to pick our movie of the month from those three. For the month, I think we're all agreed think... that Jeff's movie Green Book was the standout yeah. feature. At Didn't least, le- see Lego. at least Jeff bothered to see that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, have your moment in the sun, Neil. <laughs> so, what else have we been watching? Can you ever forgive me, Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant are spot on. Great performances. See it before you read about it. It's really good. Vice, the 
title refers to Cheney's nickname given to him by George W. I thought it was excellent. That is a historical documentary rather than a cinematic experience. Well, Christian Bale is outstanding as Dick Cheney. The film only scratched at the surface of the horrors he orchestrated, but it's still hard to believe he managed it all. A rags-to-riches story, and, and is given credit for this in the film, and is presented as a fairy tale. It's so unbelievable. It's not to everyone's taste, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a good film. <laughs> Should be to everybody's taste, though. Hey, Lucy? Yeah, no, I think I think you'll win that one. Uh, Netflix, The Umbrella Academy. It's not as good as it should be, really. It's a very clever idea, and I thought it was yeah. um, just I a little was, under, uh, underwhelming. For me, as always, cinema, TV and radio choices. For cinema, happy death day to you. If the first film was horror light, combined with Groundhog Day then this is Back to the Future 2. And in fact, I was listening to a really good article on this today that both Happy Death Days are being marketed as horror films where they're very clearly not horror films. In fact, I would recommend this to Neil and I think he'd get a great deal of enjoyment out of it. However, let's go back to Happy Death Day 2. It's an amazing mind-bending experience. Well acted by its young cast and it has the promise of a trilogy wrap at the end. I can't wait. Book Club caught up with this and one of these old people screening Gibson off Neil before you say anything a group of once talented actresses read Fifty Shades of Grey that's it really funniest joke is in the trailer about trying to go through an airport but it's not in the film and continuing in the downward slide of where the hell is cinema going Life of the Party Melissa McCarthy makes another improvised comedy which makes the Happy Time Murders look like a classic yes it does this is about a middle aged person going to university now it's funnier when Rodney Dangerfield made Back to School for TV True Detective Season 3 a very clever series which stars the ever present Marishala Ali and Stephen Dorff the way this series has used three timelines to tell its story is just breathtaking well done HBO another winner and for radio, Claire in the Community, just catching up with the last series. Sally Phillips is so funny as the unthinking social worker. Odd that this series never transitioned to TV. It would have been worth it for the political complaints alone. And for me, I've got cinema and TV. I'm preparing for another session on our local radio station, Radio Gloucestershire, on the BBC. And I was watching one of Jeff's favourites, Silence of the Lambs. And I must say, watching it again after all this time, wow, that's a cracker of a film. I hope it was Welsh lamb. <laughs> that was my cinema experience uh, for the, for this week. On TV, I've been binge-watching uh, The Expanse Season 3, a fantastic hard sci-fi story on Amazon Prime here in the UK. If you can get to see The Expanse. It's in its third season at the minute. It's well worth binge-watching the entire three seasons. Absolutely fantastic story. First contact story about a alien a molecule that appears in our solar system and then starts to mutate and evolve, and it's really, really good. Um, and also been watching the new Star Trek. That gets better and better the more I watch it, and this week's episode was particularly particularly interesting so there's two complete series that you can binge watch do they still have dilithium crystals in this star trek thing no they don't no they they they're powered by mushrooms this time they actually of course yes how do you think the what? bloody scripts are written what else would they be powered by 
<laughs> no, they travel through space and time using a fungus network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's Star Trek. What can you do? <laughs> so, um, look for something well, we original. Don't know. I mean, it might actually come true. Yeah, it probably. <laughs> Weirder things have happened. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's been absolutely excellent. Oh, and uh, on the comic book front, Neil actually put me onto this comic book. I'm really enjoying a couple of uh, comics he recommended. The first one is Cal Exit, about California trying to leave the United States, which is really, really quite gripping, incredibly violent. The other series is called Skyward, where um, gravity gets turned off on Earth and everything starts floating. And it's that's... about 10% of what it was before, yeah, wasn't it? and it's and, uh, really, really interesting. And If you don't stay on the ground or keep somewhere on the ground, ground. you just go straight upwards. Into space, yeah. Two very, very good graphic novels. Fantastic, <laughs> I must read them. <laughs> Continuing with our listener comments, what else have they been watching? Let's talk to one of our favourites, Phil, a.k.a. Phil the Bear. Hi, Phil, how are you doing? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. Anytime. Phil, concentrating on your watching and we, your blog covering what films you watch in the cinema is excellent. And anybody listening to this, I recommend you checking out Phil's reviews. Where we see them, we retweet them as well because they are so good. But let's talk about some of your TV watching. You do cover a lot of the Netflix series. You're certainly well ahead of us, certainly well ahead of me. What's good and what have you seen that's worth recommending to others? Um, so I think there's probably three series that I'm focusing on at the moment on Netflix. Um, yeah, so the first one um, that I finished watching on Netflix is DC's Titans. And um, the second one is um, the documentary on Ted Bundy, which was a four-part series. can't remember the exact title, but it um, basically features audio tapes that, um, of interviews with him whilst he was in prison. So this is Ted Bundy, the serial killer? Yeah, Ted Bundy, the serial killer, which um, I think they tied it in because Zac Efron is going to be in a film as Ted Bundy later on in the year. And this series dropped around the same time as the trailer for that film dropped. And I think the Netflix have na- snapped up like the distribution rights. I think it will come out in the cinemas, but I think they've snapped up the streaming rights. Netflix will be the, the place to go for Ted Bundy information, so, <laughs> which did, is a bit macabre. But didn't they get into... Uh, um, they have to come out with some sort of comment recently because all these people started tweeting about how attractive they found Ted Bundy? Yeah, so quite a, a lot of this sort of ongoing theme of this four-part documentary is how... Ted Bundy managed to kind of present himself as a perfectly ordinary guy and it was in the news at the time when they were referring to it they they were kind of you know this is a handsome young guy who was a law student could have gone to be good things so I don't think that it was a case of Netflix or the documentarian decided to like go with that as the theme I think that was something that was born out of the archive footage from the time that America couldn't believe that this guy was a serial killer because he presented himself as a clean-cut American, essentially. Yeah, Um, I I know something I'd read on Ted Bundy a few years ago was this guy could have gone all the way. He was in a lot of political circles. Well, yeah, so one of the interesting things, actually, that that I didn't know came out in the documentary is he was on, like, a committee that were talking about interstate sort of cooperation between police and how they like go about catching 
killers and stuff. So he almost had an inside line onto their deficiencies on, you know, in terms of so he could then go out and exploit them. So, but, you know, he was a law student and the judge who sentenced him had a bit of a love-in with him when he, he sentenced him. So it's a really surreal part of the documentaries. They've got the footage of the judge condemning him to his death sentence. And he then goes on to say, oh, it's a real shame because, you know, you're a nice guy. It would have been nice to have you practising law in front of me or something like this. Oh, good grief. It's just really bizarre. So um, ha- having seen all four episodes, what's your view of Ted Bundy after that? To be honest, there was I said to my wife, there was some parts of it. It's just grim just really really horrible like you just can't imagine that this sort of thing happens in the world i did think the series was really interesting and intriguing if you've got a strong stomach because they go into talking about what he did to his victims and stuff then i'd i'd recommend it it's it's one of those sort of macabre you can't stop watching it because you want to find out how how it all plays out even though you kind of sort of know okay what was the other one phil uh, so the other one I finished was uh, DC's Titans, um, which I, it's a bit mixed on. It's a, I, I'm a big, huge DC Comics fan, and um, there were some episodes where I just thought were really great. It has this sort of interesting... It almost kind of focuses on a different superhero or group of superheroes per episode. So you get um, Hawk and Dove and Dick Grayson and Starfire... They have one episode that seems entirely um, connected to the the other series that they're going to be releasing along the way. Uh, that's going to be in tandem to it. But it was it was one of those series that for me you'd watch a really really good episode and then you'd kind of watch an episode that you'd be like, oh, that's okay. And then I think I think Graham mentioned it in, a, in one of your pods a, a while ago. It just stops. So I think it's thirteen episodes, and the thirteenth episode just sort of finishes. And it's kind of like, oh, so I really do hope they do another series because I want to find out what they're, <laughs> yeah, they, they they're going to do with that storyline. They are doing another series, yeah. Uh, and I agree. They, they had, I think the numbers I read was that they filmed 12 for the first series. They only showed 11. And that 12th one was meant to be a major cliffhanger. And they've pulled that into the second series. So I'm not sure what's uh, going on. But I, I agree with you. I thought it was, overall it was very, very good. But it was a bit of a up and down series. I loved the one where he was with the um, they they met the family with the robot and the um, and the woman who was a, actually a giant slug and whatever that one was called. I thought that was fantastic. The woman who was a giant slug. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. Oh, misogyny yeah. rules. Well, um, no, that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's the episode that's um, keying, uh, teeing up their next series, isn't it? Because um, that's got Brendan Fraser as the robot. Yes. And, um, I can't remember what the series is going to be called, but it's almost going to be like where the Arrow and Flash kind of run concurrently. It's going to be Titans and whatever this other series is, and that kind of sort of set that up. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, but some of them were a wee bit flat. Starfire, I thought she was really well handled. I thought Beast Boy was a bit flat. To be honest, yeah, he didn't have he didn't have much say in it. Yeah. I actually thought that the other duo, the man and woman, yeah. who... Um, sort of come in and out of the series. I thought that they were much more interesting, actually, than Beast Boy was in terms of characters and stuff. Yes, and and the other thing I liked about their uh, story arc was it was very much more grounded. So, yeah, I liked them. They were street level. They were more like Daredevil and Jessica Jones level, uh, and they were more street vigilantes, definitely. Well, 
as you know, I'd, I could spend all evening talking about superheroes. <laughs> but you've got another season, another series there you want to talk about, Phil, yeah? Well, the, the other ones I, w- I was going to talk about are kind of old old stuff that I'm kind of finally catching up. So um, so I'm now on series four, which is the most recent of Better Call Saul. And I can't believe that I've been sat and like, w- waiting to watch this for so long. I think I talked to you some time ago about how I watched the whole of the first series um, on a business trip. Yeah. And um, I've now seen series two and series three, some two or three episodes into series four. And it's just brilliant just phenomenally good like this is if you thought breaking bad was good I, i'm actually close to sort of saying that better call saw was better no uh, way no way. i've never seen breaking bad so. oh no now i've had better call saw in my to watch list forever oh, i'm gonna have to push that up the uh, to watch list now <laughs> have you not seen it then okay no, yeah, well, no. so 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 seriously i just think that this is it's just genius i mean it's really cinematic in its sort of quality. The acting is phenomenal. And just the way that you can see this character becoming... Because obviously he's not Saul when the series starts. And he there's just little things. It's like, you know, things are building and building and building. And you can see that this is a character who wants to do the right thing. He's not necessarily inclined to do the right thing, but he's trying. But then you know, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back and you can see him just sort of turning into the soul that we know from Breaking Bad and it's just just really, really good. I don't know if I'd, I think it was perhaps so good if it wasn't informed by Breaking Bad. If I, if I say, like Jeff just said, he hadn't seen it, I'm not sure that... I still think you'd think it was really good, but if, if you've seen Breaking Bad and you know what he becomes, then I think that it, it makes it just that much better because you kind of... You can see it happening in those drip feed way. We're almost out of time. A quick couple of quick mentions you've got there, Phil? The other couple of things I've been watching on Netflix are um, some animated um, comedies. So I've just finally finished all nine series of Archer. Um, I think it's 102 episodes that I've been slowly watching over the last year. That is an incredibly un-PC, misogynistic, but hilarious, sort of knowing... It knows what it's doing sort of thing. So it's it's not um, trying to be bad. It's almost kind of like a, a parody of that kind of misogynistic James Bond kind of spy. I thought it was brilliant because of that. They know that early James Bond is very misogynistic and they just play with that. And there's the constant running gags that go through from series one to series, whatever the last one was, it just Crazy. never, it never stops. You know, the thing about his his girlfriend with the big hands, and yeah, it's just constantly yeah. funny. Uh, and what I love about it is that um, it evolves into an anthology sort of TV show as well. So the first, I don't know, I, I think there's nine series, but I think the first four, or five are kind of just you know like telling a continuous story, and then. It's almost like he thinks, well, I've run out of what to do here, so now I'll turn it into an anthology series. So you get this, you get Treasure Island, and you get them being private detectives, and you get them doing that road trip to um, to do some kind of drug score type thing. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, it's just yeah, really, really good. And the other, well, actually, there's two other animated series that I've been watching. So I've finished watching all of them, um, Big Mouth, which is incredibly irreverent sort of show about teenagers going through adolescent um, sort of hormones and all that sort of stuff. That is very, very funny. 
They've just released the Valentine's episode, actually. And the other one is Bojack Horseman, which is... Um... Oh, God. <laughs> Have you seen this? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, my son uh, said to me, oh, you've got to watch this, Dad. It's, it's really, really good. And I sent him a note back. After watching the first series, I said, I was promised comedy, not a detailed analysis of mental health issues. You know, yes. it's just unremitting. And I just, it's extremely funny, but behind it, it's, there's this really dark, dark cloud. Well, yeah, and that's so with Archer and Big Mouth, you're properly laugh out loud funny. It's um, just properly, you know, really, really funny belly laughs. With Bojack, it's almost like existential despair and intellectually funny. So it's not, not quite belly laughs, but it can be almost a bit depressing as well. But I've just got through, I think I'm on nearly the, at the end of the third series of that, and I think there's four. That is very, very funny. And it's got the, an absolutely genius song over the end credits. I don't know if you remember that, yes. but it's yeah. uh, where he used to be a, a TV star in the 90s. So if you don't do anything in terms of watching Bojack Horseman, at least um, find uh, the end credits song in on YouTube or something. OK, well... Yeah, I think, that, I think that's all my Netflix watching. Thank you very much for your time, Phil. Some interesting choices there. Uh, Bojack Horseman is not on my watch list, but the rest of them, I might tra- track some of those out. I might even watch Breaking Bad. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're in 2019 and you haven't seen Breaking Bad. Or The Sopranos, or The Wire... Well, I'm sorry, we oh, just have man. to cancel the next six shows. you just yeah. got to go sit in you your just, lounge you and watch it. you just got to sit in the lounge. You've got nothing else to do, so you just do that. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing Fisherman's Friends. The film, not the lozenge. <laughs> Jeff will be reviewing Us, if he bothers to go. I know we're limited to what's available, but every month it's politics or horror. The problem is it's sometimes difficult to know the difference. Graham will be reviewing <laughs> Captain Marvel. Great. Now they're naming their superheroes after their own company. Captain Disney. Captain, yes. Yeah. It's not Marvel. Yeah. It's Donald There's no, Duck. no no company called Marvel. It's just a it's just a brand name. This is Captain Disney. If they had a Captain Disney, you could complain that. Right. Over to you, Jeff. Welcome to the quiz. In the new format, I've moved everything to do with the quiz to the end of the show. Couldn't you have pushed it back further? Neil, if that tie was any tighter, your head would explode. (laughs) Yeah, let me help. Uh, (laughs) Moving on, quiz results time. So here's the last one's questions with the answers. First up, two actors have played gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson on screen. Who were the actors? Johnny Depp. And Bill Murray. Next... Fictitious journalist Lois Lane has been played by many actresses, but who played her in the following films? Superman. Margot Kidder. Superman Returns. Kate Bosworth. Man of Steel. Amy Adams. Finally, Washington Post editor Ben Bradley has been portrayed three times on screen, and one of the actors playing him won an Oscar for the role. Who were the actors who played him and in which films? Jason Robards, All the President's Men. Which, of course, won the Oscar. Tom Hanks, The Post. Alfred Molina, The Front Runner. So, let's go to this month's quiz now. This is a little bit different. We've got prizes to offer you. Who? Is, is, is it a BBC level <clears throat> prize? No, it's a ticket to Lego <laughs> Movie 2. Um, so, for the very first time, we are offering 
a limited edition set of postcards from the classic 90s comedy Mosant, which starred Lee Evans. To be in with a chance of winning this very rare set, please submit your answers to show at attheflix.co.uk. If you don't remember that, just check it out on our website. Mark your entries as Feb Quiz. All entries must be received by the 20th of March. Get that, Neil? 20th of March. <laughs> Got it. So, to tie in with our other event of the night, and uh, the champagne is starting to flow already. <laughs> here are four... All Aust- over the floor. <laughs> all over the floor. <laughs> um, <laughs> here are four Oscar questions for you. Number one. Three films have won the top five Oscars. The top five are film, actor, actress, director and script. Name all three. I'll repeat that for you. Three films have won the top five Oscars. That's film, actor, actress, director and script. Name all three films that have won those. Number two. Which two Best Actor winners refuse to accept their awards? Got one of them. Mm -hmm. Number three. Two actors have won Oscars for playing the same character, but in different films. Who were the actors, and what character did they play? Question four. Who has hosted the Oscar award show the most number of times? Good luck. Answers next month. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap, and another At The Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Let's practice for our next gig. And the Oscar goes to... Me for having to put up with Jeff's nonsense. As long as I win the best sound Oscar for the major interview, <laughs> I don't care about any other award, really. And to everyone else, thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening and, and goodbye. goodbye.